We'll open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4. Jesus has just taught and explained the parable of the soils, indicating an anatomy of what faith is and why people disbelieve or don't believe. It's anatomy of faith and unbelief. Now, just after that, Mark records in verse 21 this next little paragraph. Very interesting. Mark 4, verse 21. And he, that is Jesus, and Jesus was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket. Is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given you besides for whoever has to him, more shall be given and Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Do you remember as a kid being in that awkward moment where your mom and your dad are disagreeing and having an argument? Maybe you remember ever so recently as a parent with this happening in front of our kids. It's awkward. You love your mom and you love your dad and you wish they would agree. You know, as as strange as it sounds, I felt like that all week in preparation for this sermon. What I mean by that is some of my favorite theologians and commentators dealt with this text and completely disagreed with each other. Some were pretty strong about these disagreements and quoting one another. And I just felt like, can't we all get along? I mean, this is, this is tough. I waded through multiple commentaries on really what is a pretty tough text. If you were to read this text, as we just did, and I were to say, what is this about? What, what would your answer be? Now, before talking about that, I want to answer a question that's been asked several times. And it, it, this is a perfect place for me to provide a short answer. What is it like? What do you do to create or to craft a sermon? Now, there's a reason I want to take you through this process because it will indicate how I landed between my favorite commentators disagreeing with each other. First thing I do, and I think this will be the case with most of the teachers in our church, I read the text multiple times in English translations over and over. In the New American Standard, I read it over and over and over so it's familiar with me. Then I'll read the ESV and, and uh, the King James and the New King James and the RSV. Sometimes I'll read the, the New Living Bible. What is, what is, how is this translated? Then I go to the Greek, see how the translations disagree or agree with the original language, and I provide basically a rough translation of my own. Then I diagram 
I put things in order. What's the subject? What's the verb? Is the verb stative? Is the verb active? What's the direct object? Uh, what's the predicate? Is this a predicate nominative? Is this a predicate adjective? I put them on different lines. What's the, who's saying what if it's dialogue? And I come up with a, a grammatical, syntactical kind of outline, a big block diagram. Then I reread the preceding and the following context. So in, in looking at verses 21 to 25, I went back all the way to the beginning of the chapter and read what comes before it. And then you read after it, the conclusion of the chapter and what comes after it. Where, this is a piece of a puzzle. What's the surrounding picture look like? It's sometimes called discourse analysis. What's the whole discourse saying? Fifthly, I outlined the passage for a sermon. You'll see my outline today, which came out of my diagramming of the text. It means coming to a conclusion about the timeless truth, the main point of the text. And once you have the main point, the subpoints or the points of the outline ought to inform and explain the main point of the text, which is that proposition. Then I put these outline points on in my computer and I just start reading and making I'm typing sorry and typing observations underneath the points what do I see what what does this say what does it not say how does it connect to the context just as many observations as I can throw at it at this point now I'm ready to go and have a conversation with the commentators uh, in any given week, I'll read 12 to sometimes 20 or more commentaries on the passage that I'm dealing with. What have other men concluded and studied about this passage? Do they agree with each other? Do I agree with them? By that point, I feel like I know enough about the text that I can interact with them and not just taking what they say at face value and not scrutinizing it. I also take a point at this time to look at Bible encyclopedias. You'll see some of the fruit of that this morning. Bible dictionaries on issues in the text. Systematic theologies, which I read backwards. Sounds kind of strangely. I go to the index and see if they comment on the passage that I'm looking at and then go to the page and see what they say. And by the way, if you ever write a book, can I just beg you, if you ever write a book, please index it. Please put an index in it. I feel better now. Then I'm collating by this point all the exegetical observations that I've written down, syntactical observations, personal observations, observations of others, and I'm smoothing it out into more of a sermon that ends up on my iPad. And then I add the last part is the additional extras. Introduction, conclusion, application, transitions. And then the last thing I do, which I got up this morning very early, is I take my notes and I mark them up and I go over them again. I try to be familiar with it so that when I come up here, it's not the first time I've looked at them. Now, why go through all of that explaining sermon process? Because number four that I mentioned comes into play each week, but specifically this week. You probably weren't writing it down, but number four is looking at the context. What precedes the passage? What follows the passage? How does that inform how we think about the passage? One of the, the most fundamental errors that anyone can ever make, cults have originated from looking at passages without context. Here's the challenge. 
The paragraph before us contains several sayings of Jesus. And these sayings can be found in multiple other places scattered throughout all of the other gospels. Specifically, specifically the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this has led my friends, my commentators, to have some serious disagreements. Some believe that these verses, 21 to 25, are just sort of a quilt, a patchwork collection of different sayings that Jesus had, and Mark just threw them in there as a transition between parables. Now, frankly, if Mark had done that, if Jesus said them, there's certainly nothing wrong with collecting things that Jesus said. One scholar makes sense of this paragraph with these words. Just listen carefully. He says, and I love this, this, this common commentary. The sayings in this unit can be found scattered elsewhere in Matthew and Luke, as well as in early church tradition. This indicates that Mark assembled the material in this section are from a pool of Jesus' sayings that had been gathered together prior to his writing and that probably circulated in oral form afterward or for a considerable time. The sayings here are employed in different contexts for different purposes by the above writers. Mark weaves them into a present con the present context of chapter 4 to comment on the meaning of the parables. What he's saying is these sayings in verses 21 to 25, Jesus says somewhere, and Mark just took them from different places and kind of wove them together and spit them into this. I think that's built on a faulty presupposition. That is that Jesus didn't say the same thing multiple times in multiple places, which we know for sure he did. Further, he sometimes uses the same illustration to make different points. I've done that. You've done that. How many times have you applied the phrase needle in a haystack? Is that looking for someone after the Royals game who you're dis, uh, d dislocated from? Is that looking for that one sock that didn't make it from the dryer? W what does that mean? Well, it's okay to use that illustration to illustrate different things. And Jesus does the same thing as a master illustrator and teacher. Joseph Alexander responds to this phenomenon of Jesus teaching the same thing in multiple places. And he says this. I thought this was very encouraging. This idea that Jesus is teaching multiple, the same thing in multiple places in multiple ways is explained upon the obvious and probable assumption that these sentences belong uh, to formulas which Christ appears to have thrown out on various occasions with some diversity of application and by neg neglecting uh, which interpreters have sometimes thrown the history of the context into confusion. It's certainly conceivable that these words were uttered more than once. Matthew, having given them in one place, would be likely to omit them in another, while Mark, who does not even give the Sermon on the Mount at all, would be just as likely to insert them here. The charge of incoherence and irrelevance in this connection rests upon the false assumption that these brief proverbial maxims, these sayings of Jesus forming one of the most uh, characteristic features of our Savior's teaching method of instruction could only be uttered once with a single application, end quote. Let me make sense of all that. You can find all of these sayings in the paragraph we're studying other places in the Gospels. 
and used in different ways. But that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't say them here. Mark recorded it accurately. And Jesus had a specific purpose for saying the things. And Mark had a specific purpose for recording them here. That should encourage your understanding of how the Bible works together, not discourage it. All to say, I believe Mark is not grabbing a patchwork quilt of teaching here. Rather, he is accurately recording the teaching and the event that he learned from Peter, as we looked at in the introduction, and the Holy Spirit who informed him. This will make more sense as we move through the text, but just remember that Jesus has just explained the parable of the soils and an explanation for all four hearts represented by the soils. There's the impenetrable soil. That's an indifferent heart that hears the gospel and doesn't care. There's the shallow soil, an impulsive heart that, that responds immediately and then dies away. There's the thorny soil, a preoccupied heart, which is too concerned about the things of the world and deprioritizes Christ. And then there's the good soil, which produces fruit. Now, when you contrast the first three unproductive soils with the last productive soils, the heart of the good soil comes into clear focus. It bears fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And the point is, there is a radical, massive change that occurs in the life of someone who has received the word implanted, as the half-brother of our Lord said in James chapter 1. They receive the gospel, endure their commitment to the gospel, and they prioritize the gospel above all else. When you look at these first three soils, the last soil is contrasted against them. I'm so thankful for our weekly staff meetings when we discuss these things. And I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Aaron helped me to see how this fourth soil so corrects the first three. Think about it. The first one is impenetrable. The good soil receives it. The second soil is impulsive. The good soil remains committed even in the face of persecution. The third soil is preoccupied and the good soil prioritizes the gospel no matter what other priorities compete. The conclusion of the parable then lands, this is important, on the fact that true disciples bear what? Fruit. They are productive. Their hearts respond to the gospel. Now, immediately following that in verses 21 to 25, I think that what the Lord did with this group of isolated disciples that had pulled away beyond the crowd is he describes what the fruit bearing looks like in the life of someone who's a faithful follower. What does fruit bearing look like in the life of someone who follows the Lord? So here's the outline. Here's our proposition that we're gonna look at. Three evidences of fruitful discipleship. Three evidences evidences of fruitful discipleship. That's the point of the text, going back to our sermon organization. What does fruitful discipleship look like if it produces 30, 60, 100 fold? What is it like? What are you talking about, Jesus? He gives us three evidences to show us. The first one is in verses 21 to 22, faithful witnessing. Faithful witnessing. And he was saying to them, that's important. 
That's very important. Stop right there. The who that Jesus is addressing is critical. He was saying to them, who's the them? If you go back to verse 10, it's the the true disciples, the followers, the disciples and those who had followed Jesus and committed to follow him. Then he pulled aside outside of the crowd. This is one of what we call the Markin sandwiches. He starts talking about the crowd, talking to the crowd. He talks to the disciples and then he'll finish in this section talking to the crowd again. We know that because of verses 21 and 24. He said, not he said to them. He preached. He said to everybody. But this is he said to them. Listen, friends, every single word in Scripture matters. Every single word. He was saying to them, the them is the disciples that he had pulled aside outside of that larger group. In uh, in the next passage, he's going to go back. Mark's going to zoom out and show us what he said to the whole group again. And he said, verses 26 and 30, generically, to everyone. In this private meeting, Jesus now turns to an image that he wants the disciples to understand. The image would have been very familiar with them, and it was that of an ancient, Near Eastern, very common lamp. The most common lamps in Jesus' time were small terracotta. They were... were, um, uh, made of clay, saucer-shaped containers, sometimes with a handle on one end. On the other end was a nozzle-shaped extension with a hole in which you could place a wick. There were two holes in the top, one for pouring the olive oil in and the other to pour the wick in so that it could stay lit while you could replenish the oil and keep the lamp going. Most of these, I actually have one that I, that I bought in Israel from the time of Christ, it's, they'll fit in the palm of your hand. Most of them were common, small little pots. No electricity. These lamps would have been very common and in households. Once lit, they could be positioned in the house in two different ways. In most rooms in these ancient houses, you can go into an ancient house that's been excavated today and see these. In most rooms, they had tiny little shelves, six inches or so that stuck out from the wall and you could put the lamp on this shelf, light it, and it would provide some lighting for the room. But the most common way to illuminate something was to use a lamp stand. I've shown you a picture here of a common lamp stand with a lamp on it. Why is a lampstand preferred? Because you can move the light. If you want to see something in the corner, you don't have to bring the corner to the light. You can take the light to the corner. You can take the lampstand, put it in different places, and the light could be illuminated from that position. By the way, these lampstands play a significant role in the book of Revelation. We don't have time to study that right now. That is for another study, but remember the golden lamp stands? They were, the, the point is that people knew what these were. They were holders of the lamp, holders of the light. This was a favorite illustration of Jesus. He used it in Matthew 5, 15, Luke 16, and 11, Luke eleven thirty three. And what's the most important determining factor in what this lamp stands for is the context. 
Look back for a moment at verses 9 to 12. And he was saying, this is to the crowd, not to them. He was saying to the crowd, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers along with the 12 began asking him about the parables. Here's our different phrase. And he was saying to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing, they may not see and perceive. While hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. What is he saying? By the way, look at verse 13. He was saying to them, talking again to that intimate group. The context is that Jesus was now hiding, purposefully hiding truth from the crowds in parables. Is this because he was not a good teacher or, or in some sense uh, uh, malevolent or mean? Not at all. He had been teaching them for the better part of two years and all they wanted was food and miracles. So in order to distinguish the outsiders from the insiders, those who only wanted to uh, monopolize Jesus in terms of personal benefit and those who really wanted to follow his teaching, he began teaching in parables so that those who really wanted to know what he was saying would come and ask him. But the truth would not always be veiled in parables. And predominantly the way the truth was going to be explained and expanded was through these followers, these early followers of Jesus and you and me who would then take the truth in an open way, in a revealed way, in an exposed way and tell people the gospel. Jesus is hiding truth in parables. Only those with ears to hear can perceive their meaning but the truth will not always stay hidden. The disciples were now charged to go and be sowers themselves. Spread the news, tell the message. They were to function, this illustration, like light is to shine to dispel darkness. It illuminates. It takes a dark place and turns it into some place you can see. Now the light to which Jesus is referring here is the gospel truth that's been hidden from the masses and now through Jesus' teaching is explained to the followers which would subsequently be taught to the people who needed to be evangelized. This was interesting read in the Greek and I can't, I don't know that I can make a lot of sense out of why this was translated this way but I think it makes sense in terms of our interpretation. Mark uses what's called a definite article what doesn't, doesn't come across in modern translations. Remember from English, the definite article and anarthrous nouns. Now, I know you're yawning and saying, are you serious, Rick? I don't remember that from 10th grade English. A definite article is something that has a the in front of. It's very specific. An anarthrous uh, 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 noun, rather, anarthrous noun doesn't have a definite article. You say a. There's a difference between saying, I want a book and I want the book, Right? It's being very specific. I cannot explain why modern translations have chosen not to translate the definite article here, but all of the ones in the, at least going back to the uh, American Standard Version of the early 1900s, chose to say, 
to, to translate this uh, in this way. A lamp, instead of the lamp, the Greek says the lamp, is not brought to be put under a basket, it's the basket. Or is it under a bed? No, it's the bed. Now, what's interesting, and I can't make sense of this, is there is a definite article in the next sentence that's translated. Is it not brought to be put on what? The lampstand. They, 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 they did it for that, that reason. I don't know why. But these are very specific. Why is that important? He's not just being generic. This is the only place in the Gospels recorded using the lamp where it has the definite article. It's speaking not just generally and illustratively, but of something very specific. What is the the referring to? Well, the context tells us it's the seed. It's the message. It's the gospel. And again, every single word matters. This means that these references are specific and the context points us back to the fact that he is talking about the seed of the gospel, the message of Christ, the gospel itself, which will further be illuminated through his death and his resurrection. And just as it is the nature of light to shine, it's the duty of and fruit of a faithful disciple to let the light of the gospel shine through their witness so that others may come to understand the truth through their, through our sowing of the seeds. Now, verse 22 opens up four. Four. What is he talking about? Well, going back to verse 21, if you bring a lamp, <laughs> does anyone bring a lamp and put it under a bed? Or take a bucket, basically is what this word means. You take the lamp you put it on the floor and you put a bucket over the top. That's anti-functional for the purpose of the lamp. Let's say the lights go out in your, in your, uh, in your house. Power goes out. Bring me the flashlight. They bring the flashlight. You get the flashlight and you put it under the couch. That's stupid. Jesus is saying, lamps intend to provide light. Verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed. How is something revealed? Back in the end of verse 21, it's put on a stand. It's put where it can be shown the most light and have the most exposure to exposing darkness. Nothing is hidden Speaking of the parables, not everyone's getting it. And by the way, they wouldn't get it until after his resurrection because the message wasn't complete. Nothing is hidden, speaking of parables, except to be revealed. Someday it will all be clear. Nor has anything been secret, what he's teaching in parables, that it would come to light. In other words, you are going to be the bearers of the full Life of Christ, death of Christ, resurrection and ascension of Christ have the entire message and it will be fully revealed through you. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. I am not giving, think about this. I am not giving them the whole picture yet because it will involve my death and my resurrection. 
you will have the full picture, the full gospel, and you're called to put your message, your light on the lampstand for everyone to see and everyone to hear. No more parables, no more hiding. You're the ones who are gonna take it to the world. Faithful witnessing. As disciples become sowers themselves, as you and I become sowers of the seed, the gospel is out in the open. It's not hidden. It's not veiled. It's fully explained. It's made simple. It's put on the lampstand, which means in the place that it can provide the most light. Said another way, we aren't to hide our lights. Mark will tell us later that if we're ashamed of him, in this present world, he will be ashamed of us before the Father and the angels. Faithful witnessing. We're to be sowers of the seed as a lamp on a lamp stand. There's a second evidence of fruitful discipleship following up on the soils. Not only faithful witnessing, but secondly, spiritual perception. Spiritual Perception. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. We've already seen that in verse nine. He reemphasizes the point now privately to the followers. He said it to the masses. Now he says it to the followers. You need to have ears that hear. You need to understand what I'm saying, not just hear it and understand the grammar and the, the language that I'm saying. You need to understand the meaning, the message. Then verse 24, and he was saying to them, remember that's the phrase that tells us he's talking to that intimate group of followers, take care what you listen to. Take care what you listen to. If there is a more poignant verse for contemporary evangelicalism, I don't know where it is. Take care what you listen to. It's an appeal to being spiritually perceptive, discerning. Luke records this same conversation, by the way. And he says, take care how you listen. Be careful how you listen. Now, which one did Jesus say? I think he said both. Take care what you listen to and take care how you listen. In other words, guard your heart. Proverbs 4, for from it flow the issues of life. Guard your heart. Don't let anything enter into your ears and heart that you haven't discerned as worthy of landing and being implanted in your heart. William Hendrickson, who's studied the Gospels as much as anyone I've ever read, states that there are actually three things stressed about hearing in the Gospels. Three things that are stressed about someone who hears. First, that you should hear. Have ears to hear, that's Mark 4, 9 and 4, 23. The emphasis on hearing over against refusing to hear, that's what we saw in the soils, refusing to maintain. That you hear. Secondly, what they should hear, that's verse 24. What to hear over against what not to hear, that means you know who to listen to, what to listen to. And number three, how they should hear, Luke eight eighteen, Attentively, judiciously, over against how not to hear. Can I ask you, what's the source or sources of your spiritual understanding? Who do you trust to give you insight into what the Bible means and says? 
Who do you look to for truth? Identify what or who you listen to and you can quickly discern what you believe. This has to do with the books you read, the websites you frequent, the podcasts you listen to, even the church you choose to attend and join. Be careful that you don't listen to truth, both reading scriptures, reading books, listening to preaching, that you don't listen wrongly. I jotted down some ways that you could listen wrongly. There's lazy listening, just hearing the truth and not thinking much or deeply about it. It could indicate the heart soil of the first soil, just no penetration. Walking in and seeing heretics book right beside good evangelical scholars books with no discernment that there's any difference, lazy listening. There's diverted listening. That's listening for others' ears. How many times have you ever listened to a sermon and thought, oh, if so-and-so could hear this? Or read a book and say, oh, this is for so-and-so. And it might be. But where is it for you? That's diverted listening. Prideful listening. Thinking that you know better than the people who know better. <laughs> thinking you know better than the people who know better. It's okay to question and challenge people. But to say, ah, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's studied for all of his life, but I read it yesterday. Okay, that's interesting. Shallow listening, just hearing part of a message and typically only what you want to hear. Then there's undiscerning listening, allowing false teachers or teachers who are iffy to influence the way you think more than teachers at your local church who know you best and who have charge and care for your souls. I'm so thankful we live in a day of the internet where we can hear wonderful preachers and great teachers from all over the world. But please, please commit your life to the teaching of people that you've entrusted your trust to who know you and your soul and are not just throwing sermon darts from who knows where. I listen to other preachers, that's wonderful. But make sure that your elders and your pastors and your teachers are the ones who you are interacting about truth most with. We teach our kids, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Yeah, we should listen to that song. Spiritual perception. That's an evidence of fruit bearing. You, if you bear the right kind of fruit, you listen to the right kind of teaching. You have ears that hear and you're careful and attentive to what you listen to and how you define what's truth and error. Thirdly, third evidence of fruitful discipleship, faithful witnessing, spiritual perception. Thirdly, diligent effort. Diligent effort. This is where, by the way, some of the commentaries just went crazy against each other. It was, it was like watching a train wreck. I was reading one and then another and another and I just had to put them aside and say, I hope, hope they had coffee sometime and talked with each other. What does this mean? By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given besides. Well, what makes that interesting is in Matthew chapter seven, verse two, Jesus uses the exact same illustration, the exact same axiomatic statement, the exact same maxim, 
But there, he uses this phrase to illustrate the result of hypercritical judging. It's in the same context of the log and the speck. He applies it to the reward for those who would not judge. Here, he uses the same illustration to point to the blessings of diligent discipleship in general. The point is simple. If you have ears to hear and you take care how you listen, you allow the seed to be implanted in your heart and you're diligent to sow, to share the gospel, you will be given more privileges and greater stewardship in ministry. That's the first principle. Verse 25. Whoever has... To him, more shall be given. Has what? Has what? The truth we just discussed. Whoever has insight and truth and owns the seed and is a sower of the seed. If you've got a grasp on that, if you're studying that, if you're careful how you listen, what you listen to, that you're listening, if you're careful and discerning, God, the Holy Spirit, is so eager to pour out more stewardship on you to be responsible for. Faithful in little will mean faithful in much. But there's an opposite side of this principle as well. Look at what Jesus next says in verse 25. And this has confused so many Whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. I read one person who said, this means you can lose your salvation. Well, that's interesting because it says he doesn't have it. So how could you even lose that? What does he mean? Whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Luke recording the same scene gives us an insight. Listen to what Luke says, verse 18. So take care how you listen, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, listen, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Get the picture? This is looking back at the first three soils. Oh, they may think, they may think that they possess a true relationship with Christ. They may think they're true disciples. But if they don't implant the word in their heart, if it doesn't bear fruit, if they're distracted by the cares of the world, if persecution moves them off center, if they just ignore the truth, then that truth could be taken away. I was thinking of Romans 1. The truth that was given was suppressed, packed down in, in, in a in a bent conscience. And three times in, the, in Romans 1, it says God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. And the point is, if you have been revealed truth and you don't respond to it, be careful that there becomes a time when he just gives you over to what you really want, which is your own sin. The person who does not use his ability to understand the truth diminishes his ability to understand it. Think about that. If you do, don't use your ability to understand what he offers to anyone, let anyone who has ears hear. If you don't respond to that, then you will 
be diminished in your ability to understand it. I think this is the first three soils. D.M. and Hebert writes this. The disciples must come, must use their knowledge of the mystery of the kingdom or their grip on it will diminish until they lose even that which they now possess, this understanding. The two-sided reality is a challenge to his disciples to comprehend more completely his message about the kingdom of God. And as Jesus, end quote, as Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in him, you will bear fruit, which makes you hungry for more truth. How do we land on this? Remember, Jesus is giving the disciples instruction on how to interpret the responses to the sowing of the seed that they'll have. He's at the same time instructing those who are hearing, make sure that if you understand, you pursue your understanding to have deeper and better, more applicable understanding. That you stay hungry, you stay diligent, you bear fruit in witnessing, in perceiving, and in your effort to be faithful with what God's given you. So, how is your witness? How are you increasing your spiritual perception, your discernment, being careful how you hear truth, testing it by scripture itself? Is your effort such that God would say, you've been faithful in a little you are the one to whom I trust to give more opportunity and ministry toward. None of us pass this test like we would like. None of us. But this is a carrot of fruit bearing that he puts in front of us to be very careful to pursue. I pray that you have ears to hear that you understand the gospel and it bears fruit because of the infinite value of Jesus, his death for the sins of those who believe, his literal historical resurrection from the dead and his being seated at the right hand of God praying for the saints even today.